0: there we go. Welcome, Um, Brennan Schmidt 2.0. I don't know. To be honest, I I cannot lie. It would be awful if I started with this lie. I was standing right here, and I saw Sam walk in those back doors wearing that. Like literally, white sweatshirt, black jeans, and then he went and had someone get him white shoes. So we are twinning. And if you know me, which most of you don't, but I don't like twinning. Like, if my wife comes out of the bedroom wearing the same thing as me, like one of us is changing like straight up, and then Sam shows up in his first-time venue. He won't do it again. Like, He's not venue hosting again because of it, but no, I'm just playing. I can't make those decisions, but welcome. Thank you for coming to Oasis. Literally, like, we don't exist if you don't show up, so we are always so pleased when people come in and decide to give up their time. To come and just worship with us. Because that's what we're doing here. We're a family coming together to worship, to learn about Jesus, to see, okay, what is his life, and what does that mean for my life? Jesus is this person who is the focus of our series. A lot of times he's a focus of our series, but even more so in this one, because the series is called Mosaic, and we're walking you through the four gospels. And I have the privilege of bringing you part two, which means we had part one last week, and I would be remiss. I would miss the point. If I came up here tonight and didn't give you at least a little bit of a recap from last week, because Sean, who's a youth pastor, and it's like, you got to be praying for Sean week in, week out. The dude is a youth pastor. Like, he had a bunch of middle school youths, like, oh my. So he came up here, and he absolutely crushed it. Like, he crushed it. He brought us the gospel of Matthew, and as he walked us through that, he showed us that Matthew is showing us that Jesus is the fulfillment. He's what was promised, he's what was predicted, and he's what was desired, and through that, he asked this question at the end that I need you to continue to wrestle with. He tells us the story of how Jesus looked at Peter, and he looked at the rest of the disciples, and he asked, who do you say that I am? And when he asked that question, Sean took it, and he spun it, and he asked you, who's Jesus to you? And he he challenged us to wrestle with that through the rest of the night, and I pray that you continued to do that through the week. Because tonight, as I bring you the Gospel of Mark, as I move into part two, if you haven't recognized what Jesus is and who Jesus is to you, you're not going to be able to apply what I'm asking you from Mark. We need to recognize who is Jesus? What does he mean? Why, why is this an aspect of Christianity? Why does two billion people call upon his name, follow him, call him Savior and Lord? All right. Now part, part two. We're there. Gospel of Mark and I'll go, I'll go do the thing later if you're in high anticipation, but I do know that there's a giant ladder on the stage. Uh, this is an eight-foot ladder. There was a 10-foot ladder suggestion, like there's an option, but I'm not scared of heights. I don't want to climb up 10 feet. I didn't want to climb up eight feet, but I do need to tell you what it's for because this is how I work. If I was sitting in your seat and a pastor put his giant ladder up here and then what I wanted to do was leave it all the way to the end, but if that was me sitting there, I would sit here and for the next 26 minutes, look at this ladder and just wait for him to get to the point about the ladder. Why does he have a ladder on the stage? I would be completely distracted. I would probably learn nothing because there's a ladder on the stage. Like, focus, focus. It's just a ladder. But I know you're out there and I know some of you are focused on the ladder. So here it is. This right here. This is our beautiful ladder of success. That's what we're calling it. That's what it is. Maybe you have heard the analogy used before that there is a ladder that leads to success and it has steps and it has things that you're gonna move up through in order to reach the pinnacle, which is success. And to do this and to use the ladder and to talk about Mark, I have to first tell you a story. And we're in church, so you must be honest. Who here has seen the movie, The Wolf of Wall Street? I said honest, raise your hands okay, we're going to pray for these people right now. It's a rated R movie. No, I'm just playing. I have seen The Wolf of Wall Street. I admit it. It was funny. Like, the plot line and, like, what happens to this guy is is crazy, but don't recommend it to people. We are Jesus followers. We're not allowed to watch R-rated movies. No, I'm just kidding. You can make that decision yourself. But you watched it. I watched it. And there's this character. He's the main character. His name's Jordan Belfort. Maybe you've heard of him from something else because there's a song. And when he... I begged Jaina. I said, Jaina, come on. Like, it is part of the message. We have to do the song. And she wasn't going for it. So therefore, I'm going to play you this clip from Wolf of Wall Street. No, I'm just playing. I'm not doing that either. It's an R-rated movie. We're not watching Wolf of Wall Street on the mega screen in the church. Uh I would much rather get up here and give you my political opinions over the last week than play you the Wolf of Wall Street. Like It just ain't, both of those, not happening. Uh, What is going to happen, though, is I'm going to tell you a little bit of Jordan Belfort's story. And if you've watched the movie, if you've read some of the books, if you've read the articles, maybe you'll catch some of this. But really, he's the perfect example of how to climb the ladder of success. And there's three stages in his life and three stages in Mark that as he climbs this ladder, you see how he gets to the very top. The first one is this. It's action. i got to find my... My wife wrote these. Come on now. My handwriting is not that good. Action. In the early 80s... Uh, Jordan Belfort had actions that led him up this ladder of success. He was a salesman, and what he would do is he was like an old-fashioned Schwanz man. He drove a truck that had seafood and meat in the back. It's like, that's disgusting. Who buys meat from a tr- Maybe someone out there. I'm, a for- I'm sorry if I offended you, but that is gross to me. I'm not buying meat out of a, a traveling truck from Jordan Belfort. But he would drive around, and he had this uncanny, natural ability to sell things. He was just the best salesman ever, so he ran with this seafood meat truck company, and he did incredible. And when he was sick and tired of that, he moved into selling stocks. Not stocks, he could probably sell those too, but stocks. The things that work uh, with the businesses, and you trade them, and whatever. I'm an econ major, but that's what I'm going to explain. So he was selling stocks, and he had this ability. No matter who it was he was working with or working against, competition or coworkers, he was always better than everyone. And the actions of Jordan Belfort in the early 80s led to his second piece, which is the authority that he was given. It's pretty simple, I just don't have to explain it to you that much. If you've ever had an internship or an entry level job, if you're half decent, I'm talking half decent, you can do your job, not even great, but half decent, you start to climb up the ladder pretty quick. There are tons of terrible employees out there. Like I was working at Dairy Queen one time, and I work now at the Pancake House in Sioux Falls, and like, to get to here, you just, you pretty much got to hit the base level, but you have to start working these actions and eventually you get to the place of authority. And in 89, Jordan Belford opened up his own investment firm. It was called Stratton Oakmont. That's again from the movie. You can see what happens to Stratton Oakmont, but he opens up this business firm, this investing firm, and he starts to grow it and he becomes the He's the CEO. He's the leader. He's running the whole thing. Everybody's looking to him. He has incredible authority. And after that, he finally reaches what is the top, and I know the camera people are going to hate me, but success. He finally gets to the top. They call him the Wolf of Wall Street. He ate up all the competition. He was the best at what he does. For 10 years, he was on top. His net worth eventually reached somewhere around $200 million. It's a couple million more than me. But for comparison, if you're a sports fan, Tom Brady, his net worth is about $200 million. All the contracts he's gotten paid, all the assets he has, all the endorsements he has, he's about the same as Jordan Belfort at his peak. And he does this, and he begins to rise, and he finally reaches the pinnacle of his success, and you see, he'd be getting dirty money, Jordan Belfort. <laughs> ben didn't know the song, but if you, if you listen to it, you'll get it. And he gets to the top, and it was all sleazy, completely immoral, totally wrong. But he made it. He got there. $200 million net worth. Incredible. And the same way I sit here and I tell you this story, I wasn't there. I didn't live side by side with him. I didn't even get a firsthand account from him. But rather, I read about it, I learned about it, and I gave it to you. Well, guess what? Mark is doing the same thing for us tonight. Mark did not walk with Jesus. He shows up somewhere around between the Gospels and the book of Acts, and he's now traveling and he's a part of the early church, but he was not one of the 12 apostles who walked with Jesus. But rather, he tells you Peter's story. So as I read tonight, everything I read is Peter's story through the words of Mark. It's confusing, but it's absolutely vital that we we understand some of this background because it helps us understand what Mark's writing and why he's writing it. So we're diving in, Mark's story, Peter's story, Jesus's story. And really when he's telling all this story, It's kind of like Jesus' walk up the ladder of success. He starts down here. Nobody knows him. He's just kind of cultivating action, and he begins to climb. So let's go there. The Gospel of Mark is about action. There's 20 miracles in the Gospel of Mark. That's more than any of the other Gospels. It's completely way over the top of Mark's Gospel over and over again. His favorite word to use is immediately immediately Jesus was here doing this, and then immediately Jesus was here doing this thing, and immediately, and he's all over. It's like if you played an Avengers movie and hit fast forward, or the last Star Wars movie with a thousand cutscenes. it's just, it's crazy, it's too much, it's all about action. And these actions, pretty much the best way I can ex- describe it is it's like, who's seen Oprah's 12 Days of Christmas? And it's like, you get a car, it's Jesus like, you get a miracle, uh, you get a miracle, and it's just like all over the place, everywhere he goes, he's healing, he's teaching, he's, he's doing these things. But if I'm Jesus, I do it different. There's 20 here, 20 in the gospel of Mark, but only a couple of them on a really grand scale. Tonight I sit here and I talk to 300 of you, another hundred or so online. Jesus, when he was teaching, when he was healing, he almost always did it on a very personal level. Yeah, he fed the 5,000, which was really like 15,000. Yeah, he fed the 4,000. Yeah, he did give some teachings in front of large groups of people. But consistently, our Jesus showed up on a personal level and met people one-on-one or in small groups and listened to them. He loved them. And I don't want to start preaching too early, but that should hit a bell with you because that same Jesus wants to be personal in your life. He wants to walk with you. He wants to listen to you. He wants to heal you. He wants to be a part of your life in a personal way. That's Jesus' promise, and it's all over the Gospel of Mark. But I want to give you just one story. So Mark 1, starting in verse 40, they'll put it up on the screens. It's five verses, and I'll just read it to you. A man with leprosy came, and he begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant, which some other translations will say Jesus was compassionate. Really what I want you to see here is Jesus showed emotion. And any time I've ever gotten to speak when Ben's been the pastor, I have taken the opportunity to throw a jab. Like, I, just, I, just, I can't. I can't help myself. I have the mic. He's sitting right here. I have to poke fun. If Ben was to write a gospel, it would be like Mark's all action, way too much emotion. Like, the gospel of Mark is full of emotion, more than any of the other gospels. So, what I want you to see here is Jesus was indignant, he was compassionate, he showed emotion. And he reached out with his hand and he touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to take talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came from him from everywhere. I was telling you, Jesus Jesus works on a personal level. This is a story of pretty much two characters. You have one character, the leper, then one character, the son of man. And on the leper's side, I just need us to break down this, this idea of who he was because we pretty much have two details. He was a male and he had leprosy. And in these two details, we learn so much about his story because of this time, leprosy was not just some kind of disease you had. It didn't just change your physical appearance or the way you constantly lived your life, it absolutely radically changed from the ground up everything that happened in your life. Everything. Leprosy at this time wasn't diagnosed as one specific skin disease. Rather, they didn't have the medicine or the science, they couldn't go to Ben's wife, who's a PA at a dermatology clinic, and say, cut that nasty thing off or poke that thing, because it's gross, skin, and, and figure out what it was. Rather, they'd go to a priest and they'd say, yeah, I don't know what that is, but now you're a leper. And when they're diagnosed in this way, they're now seen as unclean in the Jewish society. And in the Jewish society, to be unclean is one of the worst things that could happen to you. Everything they did was built around this idea of cleanliness or unclean. So not only did they physically have to struggle with this disease of leprosy, but they were isolated and removed from society. At this time, they would build walls around their cities for protection because they didn't have any other best ways, so these giant walls and the leper communities would exist outside the walls. Not for the safety of the lepers, but to safety for the other people. They didn't want anybody else to be unclean. So the lepers would live completely outside, isolated, outcast, quarantined. We we feel that. They lived all alone, completely removed from society. And think about that for a sec. Like, it's one thing if you just have to go home and sleep away from everyone else. They lived there. They never left there. They wanted to go to synagogue to worship or to the temple to worship. You couldn't. You were unclean. You wanted to go have a meal with your family or your friends. No. Stay in your community. You wanted to go and get a job and work like a normal person. Sorry, you're you're a leper. And they even take it a step farther. To be a leper in this time... It wasn't just something you usually contracted, but rather they believed it was a punishment from God directly for sin in someone's life. Usually the sin of slander. So not only do people see them as an outcast, as someone diseased and sick, they see them as a sinner. Not willing to be a part of their community, not at all let them be a part of the community. And that's who you have on one side, is the leper. And on the other side, you have the son of man. And I know this title is confusing, but to be honest, it's what Jesus calls himself. It's like, if I was stepping in, I would hit auto autocorrect. And it's like, no, 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 Jesus, you were actually the son of God. I didn't, didn't know if you knew, but you were the son of God, not the son of man. And he would correct me. He said, no, 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 I'm the son of man. And in saying this, he actually instills two things about himself. One, that he was born of a virgin, that he did take on flesh and bone, that he is fully man, that he has born the same flesh and been like we are in human nature, That's what he's declaring by saying he's the son of man, but he's also calling on the text of Daniel seven where Daniel says, this son of man, this person is to be worshiped and exalted. They are to be glorified. Daniel uses the highest terms of praise for a prophet to use to talk about the son of man. So in this one term, Jesus shows us, yeah, I'm fully man, but I'm fully God. And that's where it leaves us as a perfect Messiah the fulfillment as Sean taught us. He's God himself in the human flesh. And the other part is the Jewish people thought only God could cure leprosy. Nobody besides God could cure this disease that was given by God. So Jesus and this man come together and where they come together, healing occurs. Against all social constructs of the time, if Jesus touched that man, which he did, everybody in the room would scoff. Ooh, you touched that dude? That's that's nasty, Jesus. You're unclean. Go get with the rest of the lepers. Go get with everybody else that's unclean. You're a rabbi, you're a teacher, you're a man of the faith, and you touched that disgusting man? Jesus reached out. He touched him, and in exchange, he gave him the healing that Jesus had. And what did the man give back to him? It's in the text. They switched spots. The man comes in and he starts to disobey Jesus' command to not say anything. And he tells the whole community. Everybody he can find, he's spreading the news. And he is now back in the community, back in worship, back with the people. And Jesus is where? Outside the city walls. In isolation. Completely kicked out. Ostracized. Switched places with the men. That's the Jesus you worship. And in miracles like this, when Jesus performs actions... You see that Jesus' actions give him power, or show his power, and his power shows his authority. And that gives us the part two. The Gospel of Mark is about authority. The Gospel of Mark essentially works like this ladder, but imagine it kind of as a pyramid as well. There's two halves to the Gospel. It builds up to this accumulation point, and then it kind of builds down. What I'm about to read you is in Mark 8, and it's the pinnacle, it's the very point that Mark has been building to for eight chapters. Miracle after miracle, all of these things, all of these encounters are leading to this specific moment. In Mark 8:27 through 23, or 33, Jesus says, uh, he, he travels to, with his disciples to the village of Cassari Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? And Jesus answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Sean did this last week and he unpacked it and he did, he did an awesome job. And I just have something to add here because when we read that, we're like, oh, dude, they are messing the, they're missing the mark. They've got it completely wrong. Jesus isn't John the Baptist. He's not Elijah. That's, that's dumb of them to think that. But for the Israelite culture, for the people of the Jewish faith to be ascribing these titles to Jesus, this is no slap in the face. John the Baptist is someone who came to prepare the way for Jesus. Elijah is one of the most well-regarded prophets in the Old Testament. People would know about Elijah. They'd want to model their life after Elijah. They consistently would teach about him and learn about him. So to say, Jesus, you're Elijah, they're not disregarding anything he's done. They've seen his action. They just missed one piece of his authority. And Peter steps in as the brave man, and he puts it through Mark's words right here, and he says, you're the Messiah, Jesus. And Jesus does this thing where he shrugs him off in a kind of way, and in the Gospel of Matthew, he tells it a little different, but, and when he does that, this title Peter's given Jesus, it's given him that authority that he already had, and then that authority leads to influence. Too many times when we think about these stories in the Old Testament or in the New Testament of Jesus traveling around, there, it is true that he did these personal interactions. But many times he also did have these large encounters, these people who were following him, and in our minds we picture it's just Jesus and the bros. It's just Jesus and his boys chilling and it's the 12, it's the 13 of them going around from town to town. A lot of times that wasn't how it was. Rather, he had a group of about 70, including a lot of women who would travel with him consistently and provide for his needs and sit and listen to his teaching. And then on the outside of that, he would have thousands upon thousands of people come to some of his teachings. Like the Sermon on the Mount, there's Believed where he he had thousands upon thousands of people. There's other teachings where he had to go out onto the water in a boat because the people were crowding so close to him on the boat. This is the influence Jesus welled. This is what he held. This is the authority that was given to him and it turns into influence and he does something completely radical with it because when we look at what the people of influence and of authority, of title and power in Jesus' time would do with that authority, I, I, let's just read it. Mark 10:42. Jesus calls them all together and he said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them and he's calling out the rulers of the time. Saying, you abuse your people. You do not treat them the way they've been treated. You use them as a, as a tool and a resource to further your own success. And I have a story to tell you. And it's a guy, this guy named Emperor Nero. And Emperor Nero was the emperor of Rome. And when he was the emperor of Rome, we have to understand that Rome was unlike anything we know today. It was the most powerful empire on the entire world, all the riches, all the status, all the power you could ever dream, the most powerful military, and this guy's calling all of the shots. And when he has all of this power, all of this authority, what does he do with it? Well, he does what everybody else in his time does with it. He abuses the people he's ruling over. It's actually said that Emperor Nero would go out for fun and would travel into the, the local cities, and what he would do for fun is he would mug random people. And then he'd mug them and he'd steal whatever coins they have even though he's absolutely wealthy and they'd recognize him as the emperor and they wouldn't be able to do anything. If he wasn't mugging people, the other thing he liked to do for fun is he'd like to just randomly stab people. The emperor would go out on the streets and he'd just start stabbing away. at Whoever he wanted. He was the emperor. He didn't have to get it. There was nothing they could do to come back and defend themselves against the emperor of Rome. But Jesus isn't like Nero. Jesus isn't like the rulers of his time. He's come to do something else and I told you there's two halves to Mark. This moment where Peter has now described Jesus as the Messiah is the turning point in the gospel of Mark and we've stopped kind of looking at his action and his power and we've turned to what does he do with it? And in Mark 10, 42 through 45, I'm going to start with the verse I just read you. Jesus calls them all together and he says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be a servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave to all. For even the son of man, that's Jesus, talking about himself, did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Part three. This whole idea of success Yeah, that doesn't work in Jesus' kingdom. What Jesus has come to do is he's come to demonstrate a sacrificing servant. And that's what he's defined success as. The gospel of Mark has been climbing through actions and authority to lead you to that place where he is calling you and he's calling himself and he's calling all of his followers to become a sacrificing servant. It's no longer about success. Jesus doesn't care in some regards what career path you get to, or how far you get along it. I think he wants to bless you. I think he wants to walk with you. But he wants you to do that a whole lot more. He wants you to become the sacrificing servant. And we read that, and we understand that, and we see, well, that's Jesus. That was his whole point. And Jesus came to die, right? Like, this is the whole reason Jesus came as the Son of God, to be the Lamb of God, to be the sacrifice of God. So it's easy for him to do that. But I'm telling you, Jesus is the Son of Man. He's all Man he's completely flesh He feels every temptation that that we felt The Bible will back me up on that And when he feels all those temptations Guess what those thousands of people who were following him Were consistently saying Jesus we want you as our king We want you as our ruler We want you to be a warrior We will lead you And scholars believe that actually there was this transition In Jesus' ministry Where it, it, it doesn't even make sense to me for sure But the reason Jesus consistently would tell people Not to tell Because I don't know if you noticed that, but twice now, in two of the accounts I read, Jesus, the Son of God, who came to be known, tells the people he just healed, don't say anything. Don't say anything, just go. Just go and be healed. Go and be clean. Go and recognize that I'm the Messiah, but don't say anything. And scholars will come along and say, Jesus, one of the reasons he does this is because he was building up what it meant for him to reach a sacrificing servant because so many people wanted him to strive for success. They wanted him to change what it looked like for the nation of Israel. They wanted him to be a king and a ruler and people actually believed that they could have started revolts and riots in the streets and would have tried to physically put Jesus on the throne of Rome because they didn't understand. They didn't get that he was here for this purpose. They thought he was here to be successful, to be the ruler and the king and you don't think that weighed on Jesus? You don't think he could have went away from the cross, walked away from the cross, and become the ruler, the king that they wanted and desired? You don't think he could have called in armies of angels to take over the empire of Rome? Absolutely he could have. But he chooses to be a sacrificing servant and to not do any of that. And now is where you come into the story because I've been talking a lot about Paul, Mark, been talking a lot about Jesus, and now it's time to talk about you. Where are you on the ladder of success? If you were honest with yourself, where would you put yourself? Because I'm really clear on where anybody in this room as a Christian goes on the ladder. You're not here at action. You're not here at authority. You're right here as a sacrificing servant. Jesus has given you his actions. Jesus has given you his authority. He offers it to you, and you just have to accept it, and he's going to put you at the top of the ladder as a son and a daughter of him who will now just have to live into what he's called you to rather than working for it, rather than earning it, rather than having a title or success. You're a sacrificing servant. That's who you are. That's what Jesus calls you to. And he does it in a couple different verses here. Mark eight thirty four. Then he called the crowd to him, and along with his disciples he said... Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Jesus is asking you, take up your cross. What's your sacrifice? What is it? Realistically, think about that. Answer that question for yourself. Is it you have to sacrifice your self-promotion? That you're no longer going to use your Instagram or your Facebook or your Visco or your classes or your friends or your family as resources to build your own platform in the kingdom of whatever your name is? Is that what you need to sacrifice? Do you need to sacrifice your weekly schedule? And the thing that Jesus is asking you to get involved in is small group or discipleship relationship or just to read the Bible or pray with him more? But it's gonna take some sacrifice to get rid of some of the whatever else you're doing in your week? Maybe he's calling, I don't even know if I wanna push this button, but maybe he's calling you to give up your comfortable life. I know that's what he's calling me to. And I haven't always answered the way he wants. What if Jesus called you to go away from the white picket fence, the two to three kids, the golden lab playing in the yard? What if he asked you to sacrifice and to be uncomfortable? Are you more willing to sacrifice for the American dream than you are for the kingdom of God? I see that in myself sometimes. I definitely see it in our culture where we'll work 60, 70, 80 hours a week, we'll absolutely grind and have nothing left in the tank to fill our bank accounts with money to hopefully get to a dream rather than being a sacrificing servant. And living into what Jesus wants us to live. He doesn't stop there. Next verse Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel, they'll have it. How are you a servant? How are you losing your life for the gospel and for Jesus? If I asked your friends or your family or your coworkers or your classmates or your roommates, are you a servant? Where are you sacrificing for the people you love? Are you serving them? And I would be, I I would miss again at the end of this message, this point of Mark, just about the context. Mark writes his, his gospel to a Jewish and Gentile Christian people. The Gospel of Matthew is written to the Jewish people who aren't really yet Christian, and he's trying to convince them that Jesus is the fulfillment, he's everything that we've ever studied and read about, and you need to follow him. Mark doesn't have that evangelical tone. He's not trying to really convince you of who Jesus is. You can read the Gospel of Mark, you can see his power, his action, and how he becomes a suffering servant, and I believe you can give your life to Jesus, but that was not his, or, his original intention. Rather, his original intention was to be an encouraging letter. To the people he was writing to, that person, Emperor Nero I was telling you about, he's the the emperor during this time of Christianity. He's running around, killing Christians, destroying churches, doing everything in his power to make sure Christianity can't spread. And Mark is sitting here penning these words to a people who are afflicted by their ruler and he says, just follow Jesus as a sacrificing servant. Jesus did it for you, can you do it for him? I want to encourage you tonight that as much as I want to challenge you and tell you to, to sacrifice and tell you to be a servant, I also want to encourage you that we have the opportunity, the privilege to live in America regardless of the ruler, to have not be persecuted for our faith like the early Christians and you can work out your faith and you can do these things and you don't have to, but I'm asking you, will you? And will you take the encouragement of Mark to walk that out? Jesus didn't just teach these things. He lived them. So you can't just sit here and listen to these things. You have to live them. The gospel of Mark is a gospel of action. It's a gospel of authority. And finally it finishes as a gospel about the sacrificing servant and how you're called to be the sacrificing servant. Let's pray. Father, thank you tonight for this word from Mark and and the story of Jesus through Peter's words to Mark and how through all of it, God, you've just called us to be one encouraged, but encouraged and called to become sacrificing servants to people who are going to give of our lives in different ways. You'll call each of us in different ways, God. You'll call each of us to pick up a different cost and carry that burden and to love the people around us, to lay down our agendas, to lay down uh, our our, bird, our desires God and just come to you and love you and, and love the people around us so I pray tonight Father that you would be in this room in a way that's so powerful that we can leave this room and not just let this be a message on a Sunday night that's not good enough God but you've called us to live a life absolutely permeated by this idea to be as Christians God is to be little Christ's little Christ with our lives and little Christ to his death father as we continue to serve him in everything we are and everything you do and we will need you every step of the way for that I thank you for these people father I thank you for their faithfulness to be here we praise you in Jesus name amen